Well, good morning. My name's Jenny. I'm the associate pastor here at Bethany Northeast, and I have the privilege of sharing with you all this morning from the word of God that was just read. And um, I also have the privilege, actually, of closing out our sermon series that we've been doing over the last 10 weeks called the Constant Sermon Series. Sorry, I'm going to adjust this. And uh, this has been a study where we've been looking at some of the select, some selected themes that show up again and again in Scripture, and we've been showing how they fit into the big narrative story of God. And our kids and our youth at all the different locations have actually been studying these exact same themes in Scripture every Sunday because we've really been aiming to collectively, as a whole church, get a handle on how some of these basic elements in our lives, like work and rest, like justice, like intimacy, how these things show up in the big narrative of Scripture. And this morning, we're finishing up with one final theme, and it is shalom. If that's a word that's not super familiar to you, or that might be kind of nebulous to you, you're not alone, and we're going to unpack that in a minute. But we're going to look at this idea of shalom, and first, what it was created to be, and then how it's been disrupted. This is the outline we've used most of our weeks in this series. First, then how it's been disrupted. Third, where hope exists for shalom. And finally, we'll touch, although I'm going to get probably crowded out of time, we're going to touch on the final culmination. What does it look like in the end for us as a world? So that's our study this morning. Let's pray over our time in Scripture together, if you'll join me. Lord God, we give you thanks for the incredible ability to study your word. It is ancient It is so full of wisdom about who you are. We ask that you would open our minds, open our hearts this morning to understand what you've created our world to be, that we might know you better as a result of that and know who we are more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, As I've been praying and kind of studying over these last few weeks about this this word shalom and the concept, uh, to be honest, I've been kind of vacillating back and forth between emotions. First, I'm like, man, this is such a good topic for this time in our history, this time in our country's sort of state of being. It's, look at our world, it's so relevant. And the other side of me has been more of a, ugh, shalom, is this really going to sound relevant? Is it How do we talk about peace and harmony and wholeness in a time like this? Is it going to come off totally trite, pie in the sky? Is it going to sound too sort of empty for people who are really hurting or angry or in pain right now? So these have been my emotions and kind of my thoughts as I've thought about this. And I can honestly share, I've been in a little bit more of the hurting and angry camp these past few weeks. Sad may be a best word. But I want to clarify right away that that hurt, that anger, has had nothing to do with politics. Um, My mom, I come from a house that's been divided, a house divided, I would say. My mom is a public health nurse. She's worked for over 25 years in public health nursing. She helps immigrants. She helps low-income families get health care, get health education. She's voted Democrat for as long as I can remember. But my dad is a small business owner. He's owned a family business for generations. He's voted Republican for as long as I can remember. They have literally canceled each other's ballots out their whole marriage. 
Um, but also, both of them are faithful, faithful Christians. Uh, they pour their time into their Lutheran church that I grew up in. They're still there. I mean, it's been a long, long road. And some weeks, I know they put as many hours into their church, it's not their job, into their church as I put in as I am, I'm on staff at a church. They are in love with the Lord and so in love with people. Um, I respect both of them totally equally in their political reasonings and leanings. And they've taught me a lot about not inviting politics to have a seat at the table at family dinner. And that's been good. But I want to clarify that I, um, this is not anger. This is not hurt that I've been experiencing because of politics. But it does come from the fact that right now, it's become more and more clear that we live in a country that's really divided. And this is not news to any of us. But it's a country where we've We've been hearing more recently especially that race, that ethnicity are still deciding factors in establishing someone's worth or what someone's rights are. NPR featured an interview this week. They featured a few, but they featured one this week on All Things Considered with Richard Spencer. He's a leader of the alt-right movement, and he honestly believes, he said this on national radio, that um, everyone would be better off if the races were segregated. If we had a country for European people and if we had a country for people of color and that everyone was separated out, he really believes that would be the best thing for everyone. And these views have always existed, but we don't, and we don't need to look very far into our history to see that, but they've come into the spotlight again. And seeing them on TV and hearing them on national radio has made me sad and sometimes angry. And I could go on about other reasons that maybe some of you are feeling angry or sad. We're all, I think, though, I don't need to do that. We're all profoundly aware, regardless of where you land, on the bro we're profoundly aware of the brokenness in our country and in the brokenness in our city and in our world. And many of you here today may still be reeling from the election, either the results or the process that we went through, or both. Or you might be here this morning so consumed by life right in front of you, by the people you're caring for, that you don't have any time to think about the political climate in our country. And what I want to say today is I think God is longing to speak to every one of us, regardless of where you're at in those things, about his vision for Shalom. This is a crux part of who God is and who God's created our world to be. And God wants to draw us into this vision in deeper and deeper ways. And I don't believe, after all my study, it is a trite response to our problems. It is not, um, and this sort of came to my mind, when beauty contestants are on stage, right, and they're asked, what do you, what's your biggest wish for the world, or biggest wish, I'm not quite sure what the question is, and they say, world peace, right? This is not that, and it's not pie in the sky. It's the word that m describes the most true reality there is. It's what Jesus came to establish, and it's what everyone is, of us is invited to be involved in. So with that, let's start by studying what this word shalom means, and then we'll look at what it meant in God's original design, what it looked like. But shalom is a word many of us, if not all of us in this room, have probably heard before. 
I know for me, it's one of those words I kind of vaguely knew the meaning of before I started studying it. And if someone had asked me, hey, what's the definition of shalom? I would have hemmed and hawed and been like, uh, peace maybe, harmony, I'm not sure. But I wouldn't have been wrong. It does mean peace. It's a Hebrew word. It shows up over 300 times in the Old Testament in a couple of different forms. And there's a reason that its meaning is actually vague to us. Because it is translated in scripture as over 15 different English words between its two forms. It shows up as peace, the word peace in English, most often. But it's also translated to mean welfare. It means prosperity, safety, health. And its root is the word shalom, which also means to make complete or to make whole to be finished, to be in a covenant of peace. So here's what I would sum that up to mean. Shalom certainly means peace, which might have been your gut reaction if you were thinking about what the word means. But it means more than just peace. It means wholeness, completeness, to be sure of peace, not just to have it in the moment, to be well, to be safe, to be healthy. And it means, and I'm only going to touch on this here, but It means that justice has been done, past tense. If you think about what it means to be made whole from a financial perspective, it means you've been paid in full, right? Justice has been, past tense, done for shalom, true shalom to really exist. And so I'm going to use, it's a big word, I'm going to use it some as we talk about this, even though it's not an English word, it's not in our vernacular we typically use in everyday conversation for most of us. But I'm going to use it to remind us, along with other words like peace and wholeness, to remind us that we're talking about more than just peace. And now that we've defined it, we're going to move into how we see shalom as it was originally designed. How do we see this in action? And we'll start in Genesis because that's the easy place to start when you're talking about creation. God creates the world in the Genesis narrative by giving order to chaos And then by creating vastly different kinds of species and habitats, right? He creates animals who live in the air, who live in the water, who crawl on the ground, animals who eat other animals, animals who eat plants, animals who eat insects. God creates stars and galaxies and eventually human beings in God's own image. This should sound pretty familiar to many of us. And then everything, though, is interdependent. Everything. God creates, is interdependent. This, is, this comes sort of at the end of chapter 1, and then in verse, one, or verse 31 of chapter 1, God says, it is very good. It is very good. And the next verse says, all the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. They were completed. They were finished. God finished this design, this masterpiece, this idea of of finished work is is a very basic understanding of what shalom looks like. Everything working in its order. Now, Genesis was kind of a slam dunk um, on understanding what the creation of shalom might have looked like, but Psalm 104 looks back, and other scriptures do as well, but I want to focus on Psalm 104 for a minute. It's a beautiful poem, 
And I want to read a few portions for you because it looks back on creation and how things were designed to work in a really gorgeous structure. It's a long psalm. I'm going to read sort of excerpts from it. And I normally would put it on the screen, but I actually am going to invite you, and this is dangerous because it's really dark outside and morning, but I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and uh, listen to this psalm and imagine sort of what you hear in your mind's eye, as you will. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. You covered the earth with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. You bring darkness, it becomes night. All the beasts of the earth prowl. Then people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. I think the beauty of poetry, you can open your eyes now. (laughs) I think the beauty of poetry, of the Psalms, is something that is often overlooked, but it can actually provide a beautiful space for meditation. And if you want to meditate on this concept of shalom, I would actually point you to this Psalm uh, to take a look at this week. Because what we learned is that we have a world that was designed to work together perfectly, not on its own, not a world that was designed to sort of be spun into motion and then have God step back and watch it. That is not what we have. Because Psalm 104 actually refutes this. And I'll read a a really short section that comes towards the end. Because it says that we have a world that was designed to be complete because God is present and because God is involved in every part of it. The psalmist writes, when you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take your breath away, they die. They return to dust. But when you send your spirit, they're created and you renew the face of the ground. God is intimately connected with every part of our creation, still, ongoing. And so God's the source and the cause of shalom is what we learn in this psalm and of the wholeness and health of all of creation. And there's going to be three sort of facets that we're going to look at in in this concept of shalom. Because first, we read that we were meant to be in Complete peace and intimacy with God. Complete peace and intimacy with God as human beings and as, all of, and as creatures. Second, we are meant to be in intimacy and harmony with one another. This is a facet of shalom too, this relationship between you and me. And third, we're designed to be dependent upon and intimately connected with all of creation. This shouldn't be super new information necessarily, but there's these three elements we're going to continue to talk about that all of them are required for this word shalom to be made reality. It's not just about me and God. It's not just about all of us getting along. It's not just about us caring for the earth. But as all of us have experienced firsthand, every one of these elements of shalom has been broken. It takes reading only a few chapters of scripture to learn this actually. 
when Adam and Eve are deceived and when they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, immediately, right, a few things go wrong. First, they're for the first time afraid of their God. For the first time, there is fear introduced into the relationship. And they hide. This is in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And suddenly, that dependency, that intimacy has been broken, has been fractured. Then second, God asks them, what happened? What happened? And Adam, instead of being for and with Eve, in every sense of the word, turns on her and blames her for his misjudgment, right? And then Eve, similarly, asks what's happened, and she, instead of being for and with the creatures of this earth, suddenly turns against the snake. And the perfect peace that existed in all three of those relationships is, is broken, is fractured. And it goes downhill fast, actually, from that moment, because we read in Genesis 6, three chapters later, uh, the scripture says, God sees how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. In other words, this perfect balance between people and God, this perfect peace, hasn't just been broken. It has been shattered. I learned a valuable lesson about the difference between broken and shattered a few weeks ago. Some of you have heard this story already. I was going to use my day off a couple weeks ago on a Friday to make a huge batch of chili for our monthly community meal that we serve in Lake City is Northeast. Um, and I had 15 pounds of frozen ground beef thawing on the top shelf of my refrigerator. And you may already be knowing where this is going because the top shelf is not where you're supposed to store raw meat. Hint, hint. So I have all this, but it was rock hard frozen when I put it in there and it was the only place it would fit. And so of course, Friday morning, I go to make the chili. It's finally thawed. I open my fridge door and there's blood everywhere. I mean like down the front, down the back, pooling underneath the drawers. I was not thrilled. And so, um, so Matt is so generous. He helps me unload everything from the fridge. We start pulling out shelves, pulling out drawers. And this is probably a good time to mention that it's a new fridge. We got it in April and it has glass shelves. And uh, this is a fancy upgrade that's new to both Matt and I. And so we're close to done. Matt has hands me the last shelf to clean. I stick it in the sink. I'm soaping it up under the hot water and I suddenly have no shelf anymore. It is a thousand, thousands of pieces of glass in my sink. It just shattered. Uh, turns out that's how they make these shelves, is to do that on purpose. And on my floor, on my, it's in my sink, but it's on my floor, it's in my dish rack, it is everywhere in my kitchen. I don't even know how that happened. Luckily, I was fine, my face, my face stayed intact, but it was everywhere. And it was beyond repair, right? There is no going back from that. I just stood there in shock. Like, what? Just, I had never seen anything like I've never seen glass shatter like that. Now I have. But I want to compare this, bringing us back, uh, to what happened to our world. By the time we get to Genesis 6, our peace, this shalom we had, is beyond our ability, our human ability for repair. Right? Only the God of the universe now can imagine how a shattered Salome 
can be pieced back together because it is in a million billion pieces. How can it be restored to to beauty and interdependency? And from this point forward, there's example after example of this shattered peace and imperfection in Scripture. And I don't need to list all of them. A few of them have to do with some very well-known stories in the Bible, like Abraham and Sarah, who are afraid God won't make good on their promise to them to have a son. And they introduce Hagar, their servant, into their marriage bed. And then, when she has a child, they turn her away and ultimately entire race away out of jealousy and fear. King Saul, afraid he's going to lose his power, lose God's favor, attempts to kill his son's best friend and the leader of his mighty army. Jonah is my favorite one, afraid first that he's going to be killed by the people God has called him to minister to and preach to, and so he runs away. God creatively brings him back, and he does what God wants. He obeys, he preaches, and they repent, and they seek God's forgiveness, and he's afraid what? They're not going to be judged harshly enough. He gets mad and angry that they're not going to pay for their crimes. Angry at God for his mercy. Over and over again in scripture. And I actually love that none of these characters that we look up to in scripture are perfect. But over and over again, they actually often work against God's vision of shalom. Because it sounds so familiar to me. And it clearly shows and reflects back to us our inability to fix things, our need for our God, our desperate need for our God. And today I think our issue might not be in believing that shalom has been shattered. I think every one of us in this room can probably agree, yes, it has been disrupted. Most of us know we ourselves are flawed. But the problem is actually that every path Every part of our shalom has been shattered. Some of us are most concerned about our lack of shalom with creation and the environment. Others are more concerned about our lack of peace with one another. Still others of us, especially in our Christian circles, are most concerned about our need for reconciliation with God. But every one of these is an important facet of shalom. And everyone has been shattered. And as we look toward the hope we have in this, I want to caution us that the lack of shalom in our world has been very deeply normalized for us. And that if we're not careful, we aren't going to have a big enough vision of what God is doing to restore it. And let me explain by offering a few examples. First, I think many of us in Seattle, especially, and I fall into this camp sometimes, see the people in our city who want nothing to do with God, who want nothing to do with the Christian church, And we think, well, yeah, I kind of understand why, (laughs) maybe. We've given God a bad name at times, right? Who can blame them? We live and let live. I I don't need to bother them with my belief in God. They've probably heard it plenty already. But in fact, if you believe that God is truly knitted into the fabric of the very definition of what this shalom vision looks like, and that without God it cannot exist, and I believe that, then the person who is divided from God desperately needs the hope you possess and the vision that we're talking about this morning. So that's one way, our limited vision of what God's doing. Second, others of us might see the unrest happening in Syria 
or in Ferguson, or in North Dakota, or downtown Seattle. And we think, well, this is just how things are, right? People are always going to fight. People are always going to make war. There's always going to be another hate crime. And we turn off the TV, we turn off the radio, and say, I don't want to hear about this. I don't need this in my life, and I don't blame you. The Middle East has been fighting for ages. And yet war and hatred and killing have been so normalized for us that we can be blind to the vision of true shalom like the Isaiah passage written on the screen. God promises that is coming. When Jesus came, he said, my kingdom is coming. It is now here. It's inbreaking now. This is a vision we get to enjoy now. So the final way I'd, I'd warn us is that there are those who maybe hear, maybe don't struggle with those responses, but maybe you hear about the environmental plagues plaguing our world. You hear about countries like Haiti, once were so lush and forested and now have pretty much no trees. You hear about the ice caps melting, melting and entire populations of animals losing their habitats. And you hear story after story like this, and you think, this is, uh, what, what am I going to do about it, right? There's nothing I can do. This is depressing. We're okay here in Seattle so far. I'm just going to focus on what's right in front of me. And the signs of this tremendous abuse are so all around us of our world that we've lost any hope of being able to change the narrative. And my, my caution to all of us is our vision just gets too small, too narrow of what God can do, what God is doing. Our, our vision of what shalom looks like has shrunk is my fear. And we don't believe it's possible or practical to believe that the full-blown concept of shalom is actually coming into being. And so we focus on seeking, and this is the dan real danger, we focus on seeking peace for me or peace for my family or my neighborhood or my country instead of recognizing that no true peace, no wholeness can exist for me if it does not also exist at the same time for my brother in Syria or for my sister in Calcutta or for my friend in rural Kentucky. This is the biblical vision of shalom. It's not a concept that applies to me as an individual. It's ours. It's ours to leave shattered or it's ours to restore. It is God's, but it is not mine. The prophet Jeremiah talks about this idea of a false shalom in chapter 6 of Jeremiah where he says, From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. He says, They dress the wounds of my people as though they were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Peace when there is no peace. When we cheapen this concept of peace, when we say, Stop causing conflict as though the absence of conflict is all that it takes for us to experience this, this vision of shalom. When we're concerned about our own well-being at the expense of another, that is the shattering of shalom, not the presence of it. And shalom takes the hard work of seeing, seeking the wholeness and the health and the restoration of all people, all lands, all souls. Walter Brueggemann, I'll hold this book up, uh, wrote a book called Living Towards a Vision, Biblical Reflections on Shalom. He's an Old Testament scholar, and there is tons of scripture in here, which is awesome. But he, in it, he writes a harsh word for many of us in the room. And take this as one theologian, but he says, Shalom, in a special way, 
is the task and burden of the well-off and powerful. They are the ones who held accountable for shalom. The prophets persistently criticized those well-off and powerful ones who legitimized their selfish prosperity and deceived themselves into thinking it was permanent. The prophetic vision of shalom stands against all private arrangements, all separate pieces, all ghettos that pretend the others are not there. This is central to our understanding of the hope that can be found when we talk about shalom. Because if we don't grasp the breadth and the depth of the vision God has for our world in regard to this, we can place our hope in the wrong things. We can say, my hope is just that my family is going to be okay. Or my hope is that my president will make my country great again. Or my hope is that Christ will just return and take me out of this world that's spiraling towards destruction. But the reality is from the moment Adam and Eve ate of that apple and were banished from the garden, the mo- from the moment Shalom was broken, God has been working to repair and restore it in this world. When God, and this is from when God covered the earth with floodwaters and attempted to start anew, when God, the family of Abraham was chosen to be a blessing to all families, God was working to create an ordered example of what it would look like to live as a people who were in deep relationship with God and each other. And when God finally came down to earth as a human baby, right, to live, to breathe our air, and to ultimately die as a human being, he drew all of creation into himself and offered reconciliation and justice to be done on our behalf. He ushered in a king and a kingdom that's building and restoring true peace. It's a new reality. In Isaiah chapter 9, I know this is full of scripture. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to be reading along. But in Isaiah chapter 9, long before Jesus was born, the prophet told the people of Israel that the Messiah, the Christ, was coming. And he described him as the prince of peace. It literally says, For to us, this might sound familiar, this is a scripture read often at Christmas, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Shalom, actually, peace. Of the greatness of his government and shalom, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The zeal and passion of our God for this shalom to come to our world is unimaginable, I think. We can't fully grasp how important this is to our God. And as this term prince of shalom or prince of peace In Isaiah's day, a prince was not actually just a son of royalty, living kind of a cushy, sheltered life, the way I think about princes today. Most princes were actually commanders of armies, much like Moses, much like Ramesses in Pharaoh's court. And this connects with the image of Jesus actually in the book of Revelation, where John sees a vision of Jesus on a white horse commanding heavenly armies. But what is radical here is that Those armies are not armies making violent war. Prince of Shalom, an army of peace, an army of Shalom is what Jesus is bringing. This radical vision for restoration and peace. 
Now, there is justice involved with this. And I'm not going to fully get into that, but I want to remind us that Jesus ultimately pays the price for our justice. And following him is the, is the justice that we deserve. And like Jonah, some of us get angry at that. But there is mercy available to all who follow our God. And that is part of how shalom is ushered in when Jesus comes and dies on that cross and raises from the dead and conquers death and sin and all. I know that I'm probably, yeah, I'm over time. So I want to close by reminding us that this can be practical, that this feels heady, I know, for maybe some of us, that it may not feel like I know exactly what I can do in my life to make this happen. And I want to briefly remind you of three people who show us how they did this. Two are famous, one is not. First, Martin Luther King held a tremendously large view of God's vision of what the world could be. He worked on behalf of people for whom shalom had been so shattered. And he sought through love, right, through patience, through tremendous self-sacrifice to bring that vision into reality. And he didn't fear for his own peace to be shattered or to be maintained. In fact, right, he died of violent deaths. So it was not maintained in our world. But he had such a bigger vision than his own little section of peace. Corey Ten Boom is another person who worked for this shalom tirelessly. As a Dutch Christian, she lived in Amsterdam during the Nazi regime. And she was safe from persecution. She was fine. Her family was fine. But she and her father knew they could not stand by while others were tortured, were killed. And so they worked to assist and save hundreds of Jews. It's a familiar story. She didn't fear for her own safety. So much that she would protect her own shalom at the expense of others. But these are lofty examples, I know. The last I'll share is a woman who lives in Lake City and sometimes attends Northeast, emailed me uh, last week after the election. She said she was concerned about the election results, wanted to be able to serve those who might be more vulnerable than her. So she asked if there were refugee, local refugee populations and ways to get involved. She recognized her own well-being, her own wholeness is dependent on that of others in our city who might be more vulnerable. So how do we practically participate in this hope that God has for the world? It's a question that doesn't have a tidy answer. I actually believe there's a million, billion different ways. And that if you think about that glass shattering again, and think about repairing just two pieces of it, which I'm not even sure I could have done, but I think you could do that in this world. The belief that while we might not see the whole shattered glass restored, we can imagine it, and we can do this right in front of us. I ran totally out of time to get to the culmination piece. I kind of knew I would. I am going to read the Revelation passage as our benediction that I had for this piece that just reminds us of what the ultimate vision is. But I'm going to pray to close our time. And I'm going to ask you to just reflect as the musicians come back up on a a two-part question. What is one work of shalom I can participate in that's right in front of me? What's one work? And what fear or fears might be holding me back? 
It could be a really simple thing. It could have to do with creating a space of shalom at your Thanksgiving table this week. And that might be a hard challenge, or might not. It might have to do with reaching out to refugee populations. It might have to do with working with young life to create restoration of relationship with God with our youth. I mean, there are so many ways this touches. What is one work of shalom God might be calling you to, and what is one fear that is holding you back? Is it time? Not having time. Is it not doing it well? Is it failing? Maybe something else. I invite you to just dwell on that for a second. Maybe write it down. And let me pray for us as we finish. Lord God, your vision, your reality that you are building into our world every day and every moment of this beautiful peace and shalom is overwhelming to me. And I can't see it all. But God, we ask that you would open our eyes to see better what you're doing in our world and to be able to see and share your vision for what you are calling us to as a people. And that as a church, God, we would be a picture of this shalom to our world, to our city. Help us to know how to do that well, God. And would you dispel any fears? God, in you, you say, you have overcome our world. There is no fear. Would you dispel our fears, God, and help us to boldly act as your agents of shalom in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.